welcome to Date Night at the Movies. Oh, I thought you were going to introduce yourself first. Oh, I thought we, you didn't back me up. Or how I spent my babysitter money. Apparently, see, I missed last week. So I'm just a little rusty on how this whole thing uh, goes. Well, well, welcome to Date Night. <laughs> <laughs> Should we try that again? Maybe. <laughs> All right, you go. Okay. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome to Date Night at the Movies. Or how I spent my babysitter money. I'm Jess. I'm Jordan. And this week, we are talking about widows. widows. See, I got that one right. Nailed it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Wasn't this, this is probably one of the most surprisingly good movies of the year, I think. I mean, there's no reason why we should be surprised, really, but like... No. But just the fact that, like, of all the movies that we've talked about wanting to see, especially this season, like, there's Fantastic Beasts, there's Wreck-It Ralph, there's a few other ones that we wanted to see, Mm -hmm. and I'd always just wanted to see Widows just because it sounded good. Um, I mean, I really didn't know a whole lot of, about it, and um, this is one I've seen zero trailers for. You know, I actually didn't see any trailers for this either. Really? <clears throat> yeah, I just read about it, and I was like, well, it's got a really good pedigree behind it, from casting to screenwriting to directing to music. Yeah. That I was just like, you know what? Let's see what this is like. It's kind of like, I was, I was just like, you know, I don't know what the ride's going to be, but let's take it. And it, it had a lot of power behind it. Uh, we were choosing, we were trying to choose which movie we were going to see because there is a lot out right now. Right. And this week it was either going to be Widows or Overlord, which I still kind of want to see Overlord, but like. But what I was trying to say is as you were reading the descriptions uh-huh. to me, I mean. Overlord is one that I hope I can catch on Shutter sometime. Like, yeah. and I will be excited if it's on there. But this one, like overall, like, and I. Like, seriously, guys, whenever we're choosing movies to go see, whether it's, like, in theaters or whether it's, uh, or whether it's, like, at home, like, the choices are so disparate that, like, it it's, like, you want to watch Schindler's List or Hocus Pocus, you know? Oh, yeah, we don't really have a lot of train of our thought, as you might be seeing from the playlist of movies that you see. Like, there's not, there's not a theme. Yeah. And we're not just focusing on blockbusters. We we realize we get more clicks from blockbusters. But on the flip side, we are just kind of going to see movies that we, one, want to see, but also that we just happen to see. Yeah. And I feel like this one was more along the lines of, well, we happen to see it. Yeah, it probably airs more on that. And like I said, you know, I wanted to see this one, but I wanted to see it knowing almost nothing about it. The one thing I did know about it is it was filmed in Chicago, mm-hmm. and that's where I started my acting and stunt career. Um, I lived in Chicago for about five years, and I loved every minute of it. And I, um, from working on Chicago PD um, last season, yes, it was last season because everyone had just gotten off this movie la- the last summer. Yeah. So, like, you recognize almost everybody in the stunt list, right? Yeah. So they were talking about. Having just gotten off this movie, uh, it was stunt coordinated by Doug Coleman, who also does, does, <laughs> Lord, Lord. Careful, Jordan. I know, does Westworld, um, and also just finished another TV show here in Atlanta. So, Doug, um, and he did Master and Commander as mm-hmm. well. So no, long, that's a that's a great one. Yeah, so a long pedigree of work. Yeah. So, a lot of the Chicago peeps were really thrilled that you know, something this cool came through town. Um, so 
and it was cast uh, by Mickey Pascal um, in uh, in Chicago as well. So it was really it was well it was Pascal Rudnick casting in Chicago. So it's it I, I was excited because when I realized where it was that made me excited. But other than that, I knew nothing about the movie. Yeah. Um, and this movie is definitely a very Chicago movie, you know, and yes, like it, this is like Chicago, the way Goodfellas is like New York. To right. Me. And this movie, from what I understand, wasn't originally. No. So the history of this movie, first of all, should we give her a rating on it real quick? Yes. What are we going to rate it in? Uh, black hockey masks. Black hockey masks. Yeah. Either, either that or children's toy voice modulators. Black hockey masks. All right. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to give this one like a four and a half. If n- oh, I was going to give it like a 4.8. Yeah, I mean, I am close to giving this one a 5. Um, the only reason I'm not giving it a 5 is I feel like we're going to talk about it and I'm going to go, oh, yeah, maybe. I, oh, maybe this, maybe that. Yeah, honestly, like one day we should just do a post-show, like a post-mortem of all the movies we watched and then like talk about the new ratings on how we currently feel about it. Y'all them. don't hold your breath for that one because, ooh, Lord, that's a show. Uh, maybe that should just be like a little mini episode where we literally have a stopwatch and <laughs> we're like, we have three minutes each to talk about this movie. Y'all heard the Halloween episode. We'll throw that stopwatch out so fast. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the movies we have reevaluated after the fact. I think, like, I think, let's see... Honestly, I, I think I was like a two and a half on The Predator, and I'd probably give that one more of a two. Yeah. Even though I said I rated The Nun slightly higher because I liked it more than The Predator, which really isn't saying much, but like, yeah. Um, and honestly, Brian Prince, being as cool as he did, probably leaves me with a slightly starrier vision of The Predator, well, you know? Well, also, just because... I mean, the Predator was so good just from the creature work alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so The Predator still had good things about it, whereas The Nun was just like, yeah, I guess this wasn't the worst thing I ever saw. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, no, most of the time the movies end up getting a little worse in hindsight for us. Yes. Uh, and Jessica and I are both bad about that. Like, uh, I know the one for me recently was the first Jurassic World where like you know I'll still watch it every so often but I do like it less the more I think about it and I know for you it was Avengers 4 yes I I liked it when I saw it Mm -hmm. and then now I'm just like if I never see this movie again I might be just fine but that's is that one where you would be like angry to see it again like the second Avengers movie no I don't think that's the case I've just like I saw it yeah I get it uh-huh. Everyone, spoiler alert, disapparates. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's well, whatever. Well, we are gonna have to do the next the next Avengers movie. Oh I, yes, and we'll go see it, and I have friends in it, and I'll support it. But you'll probably like it at the time, and then and then I'll probably think about it and go, oh come on, I keep falling for it. But I also, just in general, am a little over superhero movies. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that. I think uh, because we had this conversation, and we'll eventually get back to widows. But uh, we had this conversation. Right before Guardians, the first one came out, and I was just really over superhero movies, and I was really offended at the way they marketed Guardians as like, you know, I should just love it because it's a Marvel movie, and the hell with you if you think any differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so I was like, I don't even think I'm going to go see that. And then we ended up going to see it, I think, uh, just because, you know? I think we just were like, fine, we got to go see it. Yeah, and we both really liked that. And I still think the first one especially, like, I like the second one, but the first one especially still holds up. Well, Guardians kind of rewrote... Because 
back back when <laughs> when I was walking to school uphill both ways. Um, but back when, like Captain America had its own feel, Thor had its own feel. Iron Man had its own feel. Mm -hmm. And then Avengers was just kind of like this general mashup. So when Guardians came out, it felt like this lighthearted, it's what it's what all these movies, it's what Suicide Squad wanted to be. It wanted it but it rewrote the rules, but people and these studio execs I feel learned the wrong lesson from it mm -hmm. and they were like everything has to be like Guardians and that's immediately when I stopped liking Avengers. Well well, and that's the thing about, uh, that's the thing I was going to mention, like, you know, Guardians got me back on board being like, yeah, I want to go see these movies. And I've seen a few of them that you haven't, like Ant-Man was actually pretty good. Uh, I've heard good things. I, I think you would probably actually like that one pretty okay. I've heard mixed. Yeah? Because I've had some friends say I would like it, and others said that I would really not like it. It's like Guardians without as much, like, blue humor. Um... We'll but, see. Yeah. TBD. If you ever see it, I think you might like it a little more than you think. And then uh, Spider-Man Homecoming was actually really good. Yeah. Um, but uh, Shout out Chris Ilcox. <laughs> but um, right around the time of Suicide Squad, because I remember seeing the trailers of Suicide Squad, and I was just on board. You were. And, and I will say, I always held out. I mean, maybe. Well, I mean, the closer it got, the more I was less on board with it. Like At that point, I just committed to wanting to see it. But uh, the th you mentioning like everybody took the wrong lessons from Guardians. That's exactly why the thing happened with Suicide Squad. And we're not telling anybody anything new here no. because because we all lost two hours of our life that we'll never get back. Yeah, but like Suicide Squad was a vi uh, supposed to be like a really dark and gritty like movie about the villains. And then... Uh, and made them into good guys, and we were like, no. Yeah, th they went back and did reshoots to make it more humorous, and it didn't fit tonally, and to quote our friend Kelsey Walmer, it became Friends or Magic, the movie. I know. Uh, well, yeah. if so, I may... Yeah. So we're talking about superhero movies, and we've gone down this like windy path of death, and what I will say is I feel that superhero movies have made us lazy moviegoers, in a way. So in a way, sometimes when we are trying to choose a movie, I feel it feels treacherous mm -hmm. because I've, we've seen a lot of things that were really disappointing and didn't challenge me as a viewer. And then also it's been a bummer to go into all these, a great deal of movies lately to empty movie theaters. Mm -hmm. And this is now where we talk about Widows. Right. So real quick, should we talk about our literal theater experience with Widows, or should we go on ahead and rate it first? Well, we rated it. Oh, we did rate it, didn't we? Yes. Okay. So what I was trying to say I'm is... Sorry. we. So everyone, we're recording this on a Friday. Mm -hmm. We saw this movie at 10 a.m., so one of the, some of the first showings... No, we were literally the first showing... like. I mean, of course, we, it wasn't the only theater showing it at this time, I don't think. But we were at the first showings in the, the state theater. of Georgia for this movie. Okay. So, and by accident, may I add, everyone. We just didn't want to be up too late recording the podcast right. is what it was. We turned into pumpkins. Yeah. 10 a.m. to a full theater. A full theater. This is the first time on the podcast that that's happened. A full theater. Yeah. It was amazing and it reminded me I don't know how many times I looked at you and was like um holy crap this is why this is why we see movies in mass this is why we go to the movie theater because there were some amazing reactions from the theater and it made 
not only I was feeling the same things a lot of people were thinking or feeling, but it heightened it because we all felt it together. Mm-hmm. So, and that's to me going back to Jurassic world. The reason I have such a good feeling about Jurassic world and my rating on it never goes down. The first one is because of the theater experience that we had. Like we had such an amazing theater experience that the things I feel about it are, are deeper ingrained in me and this movie I think now has a deep well in me because not only did I think it was a very good movie but the theater experience was magical yes it was magical I think uh I think we can officially say the hashtag is going to be magical in this movie I agree and um so I, I just think it's worth noting because I don't know how many times we're like, where is everybody? Yeah, well, let's put it this way. So we've said in the podcast every so often, Jessica has to get up and stretch uh, in the middle of a movie. And normally she can just do it like in the front of the theater because we're the only ones there. This time she literally had to go into the hallway leading into the movie theater. Yeah, I was like, oh, crap. Um, but no, it was great. Some of the reactions were great. There was one reaction in particular that I don't think it's necessarily spoilery, but I'll wait till a little further, where I was just like, this is a weird reaction for you guys to be having. Oh, interesting. We'll yeah. get When we get into more spoiler territory. A um, couple of more housekeeping things before we continue. Mm-hmm. Um, what's our drink of the podcast? We failed for a Star is Born, so... Yeah, it seems like every time we do platonic date night sans uh, one of us, we always forget the drink of the podcast. We do. Good news is Jessica can no longer judge me for that. I know. I, <laughs> I really gave him a hard time with the Meg for a long time. Yeah, so she's officially lost the high ground on that. I'm and so really, sorry. isn't that all marriage is? <laughs> <laughs> um, so sitcom our... jokes aside. <laughs> right? Oh. And then I like hit his shoulder and go, stop it. Right. Um, what's our so what's our drink of the podcast you want to announce it yes the drink of the podcast is uh, just vodka on the rocks yes Um, and that's that's a tribute to one of the characters in this movie played by Elizabeth Debicki who was she was so good she was really good and also Viola Davis has a glass of vodka on the rocks that's right so that I don't know if they're like because like I know sometimes vodka is a stereotype is like the is like a girl's drink but you know what if I mean it is uh and I want to say some bad words right here but it was like I'll, I'll bleep it it's okay it's like you know a he like we'll say like the he man woman haters but it's like the she man haters club uh-huh. she like these bitches be drinking. Yeah. And so I think if it's a girl's drink, then I want to drink it. Yes. So we are drinking vodka on the rocks right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we started to talk about this movie. So it's not a, it's not an original movie. Uh, it is a remake off of a BBC uh, British television series. Is it a book as well? I don't think it's a book. I think it's just the television series. Um, it was back in the mid '80s, and you know, before the movie started, uh, you know how sometimes they'll have like the director give a quick, you know, "Hey guys, thanks for coming to see the movie. I mm-hmm. hope you enjoy it." Um, they don't. I don't know if they only do that on like movies that you see like the first weekend or not, because you, they, it's no rhyme or reason to why they do that. Not that but, I've noticed. But Steve McQueen, uh, who a lot of you will recognize from Twelve Years a Slave, which Jessica and I unfortunately both have not still not seen because we just don't have the stomachs to watch that whenever we're done working. We still have the screener. Yeah, it's we still, still have in our it. home. We yeah. look at it all the time. I've seen bits and pieces. Yeah, and I have zero doubt of the power of this yeah. movie. The, the one that I've seen, and the reason why I haven't had the. I mean, I guess I'm just going to say I haven't had the guts to watch it all the way through, is where they're hanging Solomon. 
Yeah. And uh, somebody goes to try and get help to like help get him down. And as he's sitting there hanging and struggling and almost dying, there are those kids playing in the background. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's beautiful and it's intense and it makes you feel things. It makes you feel angry. It makes what you it, feel for this guy. And, and it's a story that needs to be told, shan't it not be repeated. Right. But it's but it's hard to watch just whenever you, whenever you're like you know I just want to watch Gross Point Plank you know yeah it's horrifying and um, but I did appreciate it though so a lot of times these directors like they're just names yeah and Steve McQueen I mean I can imagine the white Steve McQueen yeah and so I hear that name I was so grateful to see him yeah well Steve McQueen is uh yeah so he's a British man and. From what he was saying whenever he was uh, whenever he was starting before he started off the movie is that this was a passion project of his for a long time. So I'm assuming that he grew up watching the original series. I can yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I read in an interview with him that you know he felt it was important now to change it to America, probably a to get a wider audience, but b like. He commented on this movie was so relevant in so many ways, like not to hit you over the head with it. Like it's not like a political movie and it's not a movie where it's like, you know, oh, here's the social issue of the day type of thing. But there were so many things that he put in there and we'll get into it in spoilers. That's like, yeah, you would have had to do this in America. So yeah, he was a visual artist before he started making movies. Uh, I don't know about like his history with like short films. I know the films he made, and I haven't seen them. Uh, this is actually the first one of his movies that I've seen. There's Hunger, about a, a man mm-hmm. played by Michael Fassbender on a hunger strike. Yep. And then there's Shame, which is another Michael Fassbender starring movie that's about a man with sex addiction. Yes. Um, and then uh, he made 12 Years a Slave, which again has Michael Fassbender in it. This is the first time he hasn't used Michael Fassbender in a movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he co-wrote, directed, and produced it. Uh, he co-wrote it with Gillian Flynn, who wrote the novel and the screenplay for Gone Girl. Yes. And it, and it had a very similar like feel in the intensity build. It, she, great. The twists were handled in a very similar way to that Gone Girl was. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, especially because like the big twist, they played it fairly early. Yes, but I did. I think I said the same thing in this movie as I did to Gone Girl was, um, I don't really know what's going to happen. They right. set up. They set up a really good. Yes, the twist came early, but I still didn't know how it was going to play. Well, that's the thing is that. Excuse me. In a movie like this, you expect there to be a big twist at the end, and that's what the crux of the movie is. That's what it's leading up to. This movie didn't do that. Uh, it had a twist in there, and a twist is definitely very important to the movie. Um, but that's not what the movie's building up to. It's just a part of the fabric of the story. Agreed. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I... And I think that it had they played the twist at the end of the movie, it would have been very disappointing because the twist had a lot of explanation that re- that was required from it. And I thought that yes. the way that they explained that was very good. And they didn't they didn't make you wait to hear the explanation. Like they pretty much went into the explanation as part of the story again, which is a really tricky thing to do. Right. Uh, 
they went into it almost immediately after you discovered it. So the whole you weren't waiting on how's this twist going to happen. You're you're waiting to see how that plot twist plays out and how that affects the story. Yes. But the whole time you're still with these three then four women and how are they going to pull this off cuz none yeah. of them are criminals. Right. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen much about the movie and don't know much about it, the basic premise of it is uh a group of criminals led by Liam Neeson, uh, they're thieves. They they die on a robbery heist. gone wrong. Yeah, heist gone wrong. And their widows are left, and Liam Neeson's wife, who is played by Viola Davis, uh, she is kind of on the hook for the money that he stole from... Uh, a, a powerful person yeah. in Chicago. And so then she gets she kind of she kind of manipulates the other two two of the three widows from that heist into working with her because I don't think they were even ever in any real danger to begin with. But I they think, weren't in danger, but their husbands didn't set any of them up for success. Yeah, so it's not like like she. I think that she kind of played them into making them think that they were in just as much danger as she was. But I think at the end of the day, they did it because they had nothing left. Agreed. Yeah. And and so if you're listening to our podcast on the way to the theater, which we kind of set up that you can listen to the beginning of this, and I, f- I feel like we're going to have to go to spoiler territory pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, I mean, we're encroaching on the time whenever we normally take a break anyway. Yeah. We barely talked about this movie. I know. We really, uh, guys, we're, we're about to delve. Um, but I first want to talk about the star power of Viola Davis. Yes. Because... Again, we we didn't know a whole lot about this movie, but the amount the the sheer power of her to fill a theater at ten o'clock in the morning, I, she has to be top built for this movie. She is because this movie theater was filled. It was filled, and it was filled by single seaters too. Yeah, like there was there was some couples like us, and there was some friends, um, some platonic date nights, <laughs> um, but there was we. I mean. Through, uh, we were sat next to all single seater people. Yeah. People took time out of today to see this movie. And Viola Davis is top build. How cool and amazing is that? Th- that, I mean, yeah, I don't have much else to add to there. It's just, that's awesome. Yes. You and know? I want to and do a shout out um, for all the women that we were in the theater with today who made this an even better experience. Yes. Because there's moments in this movie where you need like a, a what? And a, uh, yeah. And the amount of clapping that happened in this movie today yeah. was just wonderful. And a shout out to everybody we saw this movie with today. But also, it was so wonderful to see African American women be able to identify a very strong female who was real and grounded and and really and to see this story and I just think it was great and I am just so I was just I was just amazed like they wondered if Wonder Woman would do well and here we are yeah. Viola Davis and all these other amazing women but like, you know, Michelle Rodriguez is known for the Fast series. Yeah, and you even mentioned as we were watching the movies, it was nice to see Michelle Rodriguez get to actually act. And she was a lot better than I expected her to be because normally she's a very one-note performer. I disagree with you, but... maybe Or maybe that's just the roles that she usually gets. I think that's the roles she's usually... Because she's like, she's so tough. Yeah. And, and whenever you're given a role just to be tough, 
but she also plays very soft in the Fast series. So I expected none. I expected it to be good from her. But the other, a lot of the other performers, the the guys. Now it was interesting though. All the fellas um, at the top of the movie, those are all big star names. Yeah. So. One interesting thing about this movie, and this isn't really a spoiler because it's the crux of the whole movie. Their husbands all die, you know? Right. That's in the um, trailer, I believe. It, it might be. Like I said, I haven't seen the trailer. Okay. But like, if you're going into this movie, it's called Widows. You can probably figure it out. Touche. Um, and it happens within the first couple minutes of the movie. Yeah. Like, like literally minutes. Yeah, there are some flashbacks and everything, but like for the, if, yeah, for the actual action happens minutes within the movie. Yes. And that whole shot... Oh, it's great. Uh, yeah, it's so good. It's it's almost as good as like the car chase scene in The Dark Knight. Like it, like it's not as flashy, but it's it's just as no, intense. No, but it was very dark night nighty. This yeah. movie was very dark nighty. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that a little more yeah. in a little bit. What I was gonna say is uh, John Bernthal has really made a nice career for himself out of playing guys who like playing really bad guys who don't last long. Like yeah, right. Like he's. I you know I think that I mean he's he's good don't get me wrong but like in this movie he doesn't he literally has nothing to do. Uh, I disagree. Yeah, I disagree because his relationship with his wife is I would say none of the guys have a whole lot to do except for Liam Neeson. Well, ex- who has, but he has the least to do I think. Well, except for maybe Carrie Coon's husband who literally has one line in the movie. But like John Bernthal is the one who gets shot before everybody dies. So. He's kind of waylaid. Yeah, but his relationship with his wife is extremely poignant and Mm -hmm. really important to the crux of her whole journey. Yeah. So I disagree with you in that, but um, they all had little screen time, Mm -hmm. but a big punch. Totally. And and that's what I was going to say with, like, most of the guys in this movie, except for uh, Brian Tyree Henry... Who plays? Uh, who plays Jamal? Uh, what, were th- what were their last names? Mulligan. No, Mulligan was Colin Farrell. Oh crap! Uh, but B- Brian Tyree Henry and uh, Daniel Kaluuya are. I mean, it's hard to say good guys and bad guys in this movie because nobody's really good or bad. Like everybody's always just kind of bad. But they are the. I would say they are the main antagonists. They obviously have a lot to do, and Daniel Kaluuya is scary in this movie. Well, they're um, both of those guys, all these guys. Yeah, um, and then uh, Colin Farrell and Robert Duvall have a lot to do, but like you know, they have Matt Walsh, who most people know mm-hmm. as uh, the press secretary from Veep. Um, he literally has one scene. Uh, Michael Harney, who plays, uh, he played one of the corrections officers on Orange is the New Black and he was one of the cops in the last couple seasons of Weeds uh, he literally only has like one or two lines in there yeah um, so I just thought it was interesting that most of the guys in this movie and the ones who they cast and like I think a few of them are even on the poster uh, they don't they they're set to the side pretty pretty fast I mean this is a this is a female driven movie. Yes, and that's that's the point I was trying to make is that this is a movie about these women and it is female driven and you know I I can't imagine anybody having a problem with that because yeah. this movie is so good. It's so it's really really good. Yeah. This movie so I was trying to think about this when I was setting up down here today. Mm-hmm. Um I don't like it's a heist movie at its heart, right? 
Agreed. It's not doing anything you haven't seen in heist movies before, but just the overall tone and the way that they balance things, I think it does elevate the elevate the genre, you know? I agree. And I mean, like you said, it is a heist. At this point, it's really hard to tell a new tale, right? Mm -hmm. We're all doing things on a theme, but it is these people's experiences in a setting that really, really spoke, um, in Chicago. And I, I think that just the, the cast of characters, not literally talking cast, like the cast of characters in, if this was a real story and you were to read it in the paper, these were very real people. And one of the things, um, I know you were taking a look at IMDb after the movie. And one of the things that I saw was a headline of like, there was no relatable people in here. There was no one to root for. And I completely disagree with that. Well, see, here's here's what I was thinking. I was thinking this throughout watching the movie, too, is that just because there are no just like, you know, if, if you want to use a black and white terms for this movie, there were no good people in this movie. Like, everybody was a criminal. That doesn't mean that there weren't any likable people in this movie. Right. Well, but the, even more so, like, I really liked them because... Because we are flawed, and this we weren't this nobody was Steve Rogers, no one was Captain America. Right. What I think this movie did well is that by making almost everybody in this movie a criminal, you weren't judging them based upon them being criminals. Like it, it leveled yeah. the playing field in a way that you could accept them as characters. You accept the fact that these are women who were left with nothing. One, you know, one of them with kids. I mean, two of them with kids, and we will get into that later on. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, a woman who obviously hadn't been married to her husband that long and had a mother who basically Ooh. taught her all the wrong lessons. Yeah, and it was set in a situation, too. They were like, I'll call the cops. <laughs> and they're in Chicago, yeah. in the south side or, like, east side of Chicago, where the cops are truthfully, and also depicted in this movie, not your friend. Right. So you... Accept and understand the fact that they're making the decisions that they're making. Yes. And you don't judge them for the fact that they're criminals. You know, Correct. if you want to look at things in a black and white uh, situation, uh, then yeah, if there are no shades of gray, then yeah, go on ahead and hate these people and not don't relate to them. Right. And then also ask yourself if you, if you sit in a black and white world and you don't fall in shades of gray yourself, because that's what makes this movie so infinitely interesting because you can actually relate well, there, are, yeah, and there are so many layers to it. And whenever they bring on the fourth, the fourth member of the heist, mm -hmm. uh, who has nothing to do with it, you know, semi spoiler, uh, they lose a drive, they lose their driver, or they don't have a plan for a driver, so they bring on a woman who you meet tangent, tangentially, is that the word? Tangentially. Yes. Um, and she has nothing to do with it at first, but she's, you know, very athletic and she's very willing and she, she's oh. working like, she's working two jobs for her kid and she wants to And do like runs to these jobs. Yeah. So she's not like, like she, like this woman is, is like super mom yeah. and she's, you know, her kid's going to become a teenager and go, you didn't spend enough time with me, but like there would be no food on the table without her. It, yeah. She was that character. Um, yeah, and whenever she gets brought along, it's like, yeah, she didn't have a criminal history. She didn't have any real reason to do this, except that she was like, I want 
I want a better life for my daughter. I'm ready to I'm ready to do something different. Yeah. And whenever Jessica says she had to run to these jobs, like so there's a scene in the movie where she works at a hair salon. Um and then she gets home to see her daughter and then she gets a call and she's like, Yeah, I have to go. I can be there in twenty minutes and she has to just immediately turn back around and leave her daughter. And she is bolting to the bus. I mean and, like like sprint yeah this this Olympic woman sprinting i mean and the second we saw her jessica was me like i'm jealous of her shoulders oh my gosh shoulder goals this yeah. woman uh um cynthia uh arrivo and uh, she plays the character bell uh-huh um fierce yes sasha fierce was based off of this actress yes but uh whenever she was running to the bus i initially thought that she had something to do with the larger story of the crime itself and it turns out oh no she was just running to be a nanny like she had to leave her own kid to go watch after somebody else's kids and you know for twenty dollars an hour yeah i mean just because she needed the money yeah so so that's what i think this movie did really well as far as again like you know it's it laid in the shades of gray very well yeah oh so cynthia cynthia um arrivo uh was in the color purple on Broadway. Oh, really? She's a yeah. She's a British actress. Um, uh, she's also a singer songwriter. She won the 2016 Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical and the 2017 Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album. So was that for Color Purple? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, she. For something that you don't, she doesn't inherently add to the heist itself, but Mm -hmm. as soon as she's added to the team, adds infinitely more. And I also, I think it attributes to the great writing and directing of this movie Mm -hmm. because it was, there was only a moment of being like, you're introduced to her. So you know, she's going to be involved. And as soon as she does, you're just like, Oh, this is going to work. Like she solves not just one problem, but many. Right. She's so fierce and so relatable, and uh, she, she's great. I would say Belle's like my favorite character. Yeah, she's she's definitely one of the top ones. Yeah. Um, is there anything that we should? Uh, oh, because we're gonna forget about it. Let's talk about music. Uh, sure. Yeah, because we're about to have to. We're about getting in break time right now, and then we'll get into spoilers, yes. which really is what the meat of this discussion is going to be. Just because we don't want to ruin anything for anybody who yes. hasn't seen it. This movie is very entwined together. It's kind of like talking. Because we'll probably end up referring to Gone Girl a lot. Gone Girl's really hard to just talk about because it gets it gets complicated quickly. Mm-hmm. Like you learn pretty quickly that she's hiding herself. Yeah. So, Spoiler for a five six year old movie. Right. So this movie is very similar in that way, and it's yeah. So it gets it gets intertwined quickly. But yeah, let's talk about music because I think that's going to be for those of you again on your way to see the movie. Hopefully, oh, it was it was the score was really interesting. Yeah. Well, for one thing, there wasn't score for almost the first half of the movie. It felt like you, I don't know if it was the whole half. Mm-hmm. I would say just under a half, maybe. Yeah. But like you know, it's a lot of diegetic music. Um, and it's a lot of song placement stuff, but like there wasn't a yeah. big score. So Hans Zimmer did the score for this. And one thing that's unfortunate, because I liked it, it's not my favorite Hans Zimmer score I've ever heard, but I thought it worked mm-hmm. really well for this movie. I, I'll, I'll listen to it uh, outside of the context of the movie to see how I really feel about it. Yeah. But um, 
you know, it's not one of his most memorable ones. Now, what's unfortunate, I think, is that because it's really in vogue to be a Hans Zimmer hater, which uh, we, we've talked really? about. Yeah, just because just because he's the one who's out there, like you know, oh. in in the way in the way that it's easy for people to make fun of John Williams by doing bum 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 bum, bum and that's like what people do when they make fun of John Williams. So it's really easy for people to make fun of Hans Zimmer for having a sound that basically became the zeitgeist of film scoring for a solid 15 years. Right. But do yourself a favor, and we've talked about this before, go see the documentary Score. Yeah. And then tell us what you think about Hans Zimmer. Because Hans Zimmer is like, funny enough, like the bad boy of like composing mm-hmm. in a weird yeah. like white guy way. But um, he... I mean, you can't watch heist, um, like literally at one point I go, this movie sounds like Inception. Who wrote the music? And Jordan goes, Hans Zimmer. Yeah. So it, it sounds like, a, this movie sounds and has notes of feeling like a Chris Nolan movie. Yeah, so what I was going to say on that point actually uh, is it's going to give fuel to the anti-Hans Zimmer fire if people pay enough attention to it, I think. Because uh-huh. there are lots of, like, the heist music itself and, like, when they're getting ready to put the heist together and they're actually on the heist. Yeah. Yeah, it feels very Dark Knight. Super Dark Knight. Yeah, and it's got a lot of the same flavors and rhythms and everything like that. Now, I will say that in this movie, that got me amped up for it. Oh, it so, was great. So I don't care if it's original, not original, how all the different shades that it might be from The Dark Knight. I loved how they used it in this movie. Does Steve McQueen typically work with Hans Zimmer? Steve McQueen, I don't know who he worked with on Shame and Hunger, but he worked with Hans Zimmer on 12 Years a Slave. Okay. Because it, even if he had a normal composer, if he was like, I'm doing a heist movie, I mean, why? I could totally see just even out of the blue going to Hans Zimmer for this movie because. Hans Zimmer can do this movie in his sleep. Yeah. And maybe that's not a, a good thing. But also, I think it's really important that sometimes you're known for something. And if you do it really well, I mean, it was really well done and it fit this movie. Absolutely. And so there was not a whole lot of different pieces in this movie. Like I said, it, it'll be one of those things where I'll have to see if they even release a score to it because I I don't think there were too many different cuts of music to this movie but there were yeah. two main things there was the heist music which is like really rhythmic and that's the, what we call the dark nighty and then the thing that made Jessica think of Inception which is like the more emotional part of it which is all I think it's just a string orchestra I didn't hear any brass or winds or percussion or anything else in there okay uh, and that had some melodies similar to uh, Inception it had some melodies that actually shared it with uh, Blade Runner as well oh interesting um but it's all done with string orchestra, and I thought that was really good. Um, the so the one bit because after the movie, whenever we see it, you know, like we say almost every podcast, we don't talk about the movie until we start recording. Correct. Uh, so one thing that I do, like uh, you know, we went out to eat afterwards, and whenever you were on your uh, work call before we had to get down here, is I IMDb'd and Wikipedia'd it, and I do that with all of our movies to give us some you know interesting talking points. With this one, there's not a whole lot because I think that this movie, it was just like, oh, Steve McQueen just won an Oscar. Let's let him do whatever he wants. Oh, he wants to work with Gillian Flynn? Yeah, let's bring her on. Oh, oh he funny. wants Viola, or is it Viola or Viola? I'm pretty sure it's Viola Davis. Oh. And uh, Miss Davis, we know you listen to yes. this podcast. You'll have to forgive me. I'm a musician. I say Viola. So, uh, but if we are saying your name wrong, just let us know. Yeah, yeah. You know, swing by the studio and uh, you know, <laughs> let us know. 
But um, I think it was just like where it was like, oh, this is the story you want to tell, and these are the people you want to work with. Yes, here you go. Um, so yeah. there, so there's not a lot of like drama or anything like that behind the scenes. Or it was, and it was classically made. Yeah, like it went through casting uh-huh. people were signed on and i'm sure like these all were deals and then everybody got the script and the script was probably pretty dang good and everybody got together they classically made a movie it went to post and it went out yeah so the one interesting bit of trivia that i found is that han zimmer actually worked on the original widows really yeah so han zimmer got his start by you know how like you know how like a lot of the guys who work with Hans Zimmer uh, got their start by like making coffee in his studio, yes. right? Uh, he tells a really great story about uh, Ramin Jawadi, who does uh, music for Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. How whenever they were doing the first Pirates of the Caribbean, and that's a big story on the score because Hans was supposed to do it, but he contractually couldn't leave the Last Samurai, so he gave it to uh, Klaus Bedelt. And then I guess Klaus was having a hard time finishing it, so Hans literally took like. Like, there are, like, nine listed composers on that movie. Wow. Hans wrote the themes, and then he was, like, assigning it to other people to get the music finished. Right. And uh, it was the scene where uh, where Jack Sparrow and Will were fighting in the blacksmith shop. I love that scene. Yeah, they couldn't nail the music for it. And Ramin Jawadi was just a guitar player who was making Hans's coffee at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and... You know, they couldn't do it, they couldn't do it, and then Rameen was like, hey, is it okay if I stay a little late, and can I take a crack at it? And Hans was like, yeah, sure, whatever, I don't care. You know, everything's digital, it's not like you're even using tape, you know? Right. And so apparently he stayed there all night and wrote music for that scene. Hans came back and listened to it, and he was just like, you're never making my coffee again. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, So with this movie, actually, there was only like one additional composer on there but that's because there wasn't a lot of original score but anyway back to the point so Hans got his start doing this that same type of thing with a composer named Stanley Myers who you'll probably recognize Stanley Myers from I believe he did The Witches the Roald Dahl movie oh that cray cray movie that gives me nightmares as an adult yeah um, and Stanley Angelica Houston <laughs> Stanley Myers was the composer for Widows so at you mean Witches no the original Widows oh yes yeah. sorry I I thought you were still talking about witches, and then no, I was just le- giving you a frame of reference. Might be, might be. It's okay. You, you. I can't always expect you to keep up with my geeky encyclopedia <laughs> that I have in my head. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> uh, but no, so Stanley Myers was the composer on Widows, and I think that would have been about eighty-five, and that was around the time whenever Hans was, uh, whenever Hans was kind of starting his own career off of that. So I think that he didn't work on the whole series, but he was there for a part of it. Cool. Yeah. Um, so that was the one bit of interesting IMDb trivia that I found. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah. I bet that kind of felt kind of full circle-y for him. Or at yeah. least I hope so. Yeah. Like I have moments of full circle business in my life and uh-huh. you go, oh, that feels good. Yeah. And then you move on and it's great. But um, but no, I like I liked the music in this movie. Whether or not it's something that you would listen to by itself. Uh, like First Man, I could see listening to the music by itself. Halloween, I've listened to the album by itself and I actually really liked it. Um, this one, I don't think it's that, but I think it works perfectly for the movie. So I'm completely on board. Yeah. Agreed. I agree. Yeah. On that note. Yeah. Let's uh, take a quick break. Sounds good. All right. We'll be right back. Have you ever looked at all those Insta celebrities and been like, where do you get your raw jewelry because it's gorgeous? Or where did you get that female empowerment shirt because I need one? But then you think to yourself, I don't wanna go shopping because it's too selfish. What if I could tell you you could get awesome apparel, awesome jewelry, and 
it gives back. You need to check out Rock's Jewelry Shop. That's right, Rock's, R-O-X. Rock's Jewelry Shop has amazing jewelry and I just got a shirt that says, those females are strong as hell. Thank you, Kimmy Schmidt. You can check out Rock's Jewelry Shop online and with code date night, you'll get 15% off. So head on over to Rock's, R-O-X, jewelryshop.com, code date night for 15% off. And welcome back to Date Night the Movies. So we are back talking about Widows. Yes, the Steve McQueen uh, film that got released, um, for those of you listening in the future, and kind of the holiday season of 2018. Yeah, and literally we are recording this, like we said, we were were at the first showing at the theater it was playing in. Yes. So I don't think there was any theater anywhere in Atlanta that was playing it any earlier. I'd be surprised if there was any theater, besides like sneak previews or... Uh, maybe like, you know, sometimes they do a Thursday night thing at a few theaters, but like we were literally the first showing on opening day. Yes. And we were recording this on opening day as well. Exactly. Actually. Um, so one of the characters he has been, uh, plays one of the security guards, um, is the stunt coordinator, Chris Nolte. Um, uh, Chris he, Nolte. He wasn't the stunt coordinator for this, right? No, but, um, like he does the Chicago units of Shameless. Uh, he does Chicago PD. Tom Lowell was one of the additional stunt coordinators for it, who is, um, also from the Dark Knight. I think Chris was also in the Dark Knight. Well, I mean, I, anybody stunts in Chicago, like at, at that level was probably working on the Dark Knight at some point, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, I would have uh, been because like other people that I know did, but I was in Vegas working that That's summer. That's right, yeah. So I was in Vegas working, and I was just like, I missed what? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Um, so hindsight being twenty twenty, um, which you know I love the Dark Knight because um, at the beginning is the uh, the anybody who's lived there, you know that the Red Eye magazine. And mm-hmm. had a very specific, and it's like in the opening shot of the Dark Knight. It's like whenever, like who you later find out is Joker, uh, is waiting on the curb, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's right there, and you're just like, huh, funny. So anyway, um, we are talking about Widows, which is kind of this amazing Chicago film, but also an incredible story. And I, I mean, this cast, there is not... A bad player. No. There are no... This is one of those, like, no small roles. Yeah. And even the small roles are important, like we were talking about yeah, before no the break. no small roles. Yeah. Yeah, like, like uh, you know, I highly doubt that John Bernthal was on was on set for more than a week. Oh. Uh, no. Matt Walsh was probably in a day. Oh, yeah. Um, but, like, they were both so important to the crux of the story. Um, the four women leads... Uh, we, we'll get to Carrie Coon a little bit because that's really spoilery. Well, um, I think, shall we just go into spoiler territory? All right, yeah. So from here on out, consider yourself warned is that not everything may be a spoiler, but we're not going to be parsing out spoilers. We're just It's just going to be a fabric yes, of the conversation. Yes, this, because this film is intrinsic to itself and the story as a, it's a story as a whole. And it's, I think this story is extremely powerful. I mm. think it's just... I think it's extremely powerful. Yeah. Oh my God. So, but the four main leads, uh, Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, and what was Belle's name? Um, Cynthia, and I need to make sure, her, her is, uh, Belle is Cynthia, Cynthia, Cynthia. Oh, goodness gracious. 
We're literally scrolling through our phones to make sure that we pronounce everybody's names correctly. Arivo. Cynthia Arivo. Yeah. They were incredible. Oh, And I've my seen gosh. Elizabeth DeBecky in a couple of things. She was in the very unfortunate Cloverfield Paradox. I didn't see that. Yeah, you're not missing out on I much. I didn't think I was. No, I, I think I watched that uh, whenever you had like an early call the next day and you went to bed early. And I was like, okay, I'll just watch Cloverfield. Oh, and she was in Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. Who would she play in that? Uh, her, it was, so according to the internet, uh, DeBecky's breakout role came in 2013 as Jordan Baker in Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. It's been so long since I've seen slash read that, but I mean, I've, I mean, read the book. I didn't see Baz Luhrmann's. Yeah. But she was very good in this movie. She was, and you know, it was really great. She was the tall skinny girl Uh and like. She was towering over oh, everybody that, that, else. This one, I, how tall is she? Good lord, I, she is I, tall. Um, but she, like, especially in Chicago, like, you're a tall, skinny girl. Like, you don't get as much respect because that is just, like, not what flies in Chicago. And she, and everyone treats her that way. And everyone treats her bad. Like, it's the movie starts off and, like, John Bernthal, who plays her husband, is, like, rubbing the black eye. God, she keeps getting hit and then everybody touches where they hit her. Yeah, I mean, she is, which is interesting because a movie where, you know, like two of the main leads are African American. And there's some, there's some really interesting things that they touch about on race in this movie, which I think is just brilliant the way they handled it. Yes. But like, she is the most, she is one of the most put upon characters in this movie. Uh, you know, her mother played by Jackie Weaver, who Jackie Weaver's always good. Oh, she's so good. But she... She's rough. Yeah, and she looks like, you know, her mother basically pressures her into uh, signing up to for a sugar daddy website. Yeah, she well, um, she becomes an escort. Yeah, basically that's what that is. And her mother's like, this is a good idea for you. And then you can use the money to go to college. And it, like she was just so manipulative. Yes, and, and as... Um, uh, as a as an old millennial, which apparently we have a different name. We're Zennials. Okay, we're Because we're right in between Generation X and Millennial. Okay. Um, hearing that, like, all I want you to do is go to college. It's like this dream that someone else has for you. And it's like she's living the dream that uh, all these other people have for her. Well, yeah, and so, and like, at the end of the movie, you know, you see her finally make her own her own decision, which is just to meet her friend at a diner. You know, right? Something so simple. And but the way, like the way that she carried herself, the way that it was shot, uh, and the music that was played behind that, it made it seem like yes, this is my choice. And like it, yeah. it's a simple little act, but you you feel you feel her being empowered by that. Slowly but surely, and it's I think I think it's also really important to show how these women are worn down. Mm-hmm. So in prime example, because she's literally people keep flipping, hitting her. Yeah, and like. She, uh, Viola Davis hits her too, mm-hmm. and she hits Viola Davis back. Yeah, and like you see, and in the case of all these women, not all the women are actually domestically abused, but it's just an example of why these women needed to take charge of something so risky because yeah. they had little to nothing to lose. Now, one thing I do want to say about her character mm-hmm. uh, is the scene where she goes to buy the guns at the gun show. Oh. It's so good. It's brilliant. So like, mom, mom, you always said that a girl, a gun's a girl's best friend. Yeah. So basically, uh, 
you know, Elizabeth Debicki is, I think she's first generation American from a Polish family. No, she's, she's born in Paris, France. By the way, she's almost, guys, she's just shy um, of 6'3". There we go. Like, she's taller than you, babe. Yeah. She was born in Paris to a, Paris to a Polish father and an uh, Australian mother of Irish descent. Yeah. She, so she's like, she's not a... American. Oh, well, everything I've seen her in, she has an American accent. It's a yeah, very good American accent. She is, I mean, she went to school in Melbourne. I mean, she is, for what all it's worth, European yeah. and Australian. She's so, not So, but, American. so she's uh, supposed to be, like, her grandparents were Polish. And, you know, she looks very Eastern European. Oh, very much. Uh, and, like, that's actually one of the reasons why we're doing uh, Vodka on the Rocks is because when she goes to meet her her client basically when she yes. becomes her sugar daddy well she becomes an escort she's, yeah. she's like a professional escort um so he was like you want a drink she's like yeah vodka on the rocks he's like oh are you russian she's like no i'm polish or my grandparents were so like you know he had very much that that type of reaction that white people tend to have you know <laughs> uh but um so going back to the gun show, she has to buy these guns and she doesn't want anything traced back to her. Right. And she knows nothing about guns. Yeah. She doesn't know anything. All she knows is that Viola Davis told her to, uh, to buy three Glocks and enough ammunition. And so she goes up to this woman, you know, dressed in plaid and denim with her daughter. And like, you know, she looks like she's a gun enthusiast and she goes up, she puts on a Russian accent and she's like, you know, I'm a, how you say mail order. Uh, and I'm trying to protect my children. Can you help me buy a gun? And that's whenever the daughter's like, Mom, you always say a gun is a girl's best friend. And she's like, okay, what do you need? She's like, I need three Glocks. She's just like, that's a lot of guns, like getting suspicious. She's like, but I want one for every room. And she's and, like, okay. And she flips into like the stereotypical battered uh, mail order bride role so fast. And then she leaves just like strutting out with like a plastic <laughs> shopping bag full of guns, eating a hot dog. Was it a hot dog? Yeah. I thought it was a burrito. I think it's a hot dog. That's hysterical. But like, she just, she also just kind of flips. I think all the stereotypes in this film were just continually flipped on their heads. Like, you know, you take, uh, Belle's character and as like this uneducated has to work all the jobs, got no baby daddy. Um, I'm sorry, that woman is smart and works her booty off yeah. to make ends remotely meet. Yeah. And then you've got um, uh, Michelle Rodriguez's character who just wants to own like this frilly dress shop. So she, that's an interesting thing because you, I think you actually hit on a really good point. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, I just got really excited about the point you were making. Uh-huh. Uh, is that everybody's introduced, except for Viola, excuse me, except for Viola Davis, I guess. But like, uh, but you know, like, um, Elizabeth Debicki is introduced as like you know the battered housewife, uh, and then uh, you know Belle is introduced as exactly as you described her, and Michelle Rodriguez is introduced as a Hispanic woman who owns a shop specifically for quinceañeras, mm-hmm. uh, and so like they basically put them in these stereotypes. And let them break out of them naturally. But also let them own them. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, Belle ends up, uh, I don't know if she goes back to being a hairdresser. No, she leaves the money for her boss. Part of the leaves. money. Yeah, part oh, of the money. No, girls, girl gets some of her money. Um, but like Michelle Rodriguez's character just wants a life of her own and to own, to have her own business. And then her husband is a loser and squanders it and, yeah. and Let, screws it all up. Let's talk about husbands real quick. 
So, okay. so there's Liam Neeson, who you know we're gonna we'll get to him later. Oh, oof. Yeah. By the way, I called it and I was right. Yeah. Whenever we talk about this, I have to give it up because normally Jessica's theories on what's happening in a movie they are not correct, and she <laughs> was dead on this time. <laughs> like, uh, like, um, it scared me how dead on I was. I know. <laughs> uh, so then there was John Bernthal, who we've already, uh, who we already talked God, about. He plays such a nasty person yeah. so well. well. And the way that she describes it too is that he was always mean before a heist and nice after a heist. Mm-hmm. So like you know, they never actually say that you know he hit her, but if you can't glean that from the context, then you're not paying attention. Oh, and because you know he talks about too, like she, so she's sitting there with a black eye with him. And he's just like, why don't you put makeup over that? It makes me feel bad. And she's like, it makes me feel bad too. Yeah. Oof. Um, Oof. It, it was it was rough. But then, uh, and then uh, Michelle Rodriguez's husband, who, like, they seem to have, like, you know, a close relationship. He's just a degenerate gambler. Yes. Uh, and he pawned, he pawned off her store. store behind her back, basically. Yeah, he basically pawned off her store lease. Um, and, like... After he dies, like they, she comes into her store to come open it for the day, and the owners are like taking everything away. Well, they're not the owners; they're they're the loan sharks, right? And they take they take everything away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, what's so interesting culturally too is after he dies, his mother blames Michelle Rodriguez's character yeah. for his death. Like, well, if you weren't around, he wouldn't have had to do all these things in order to make money for himself. Like nothing was his fault. Yeah. It was all the woman's fault. Mm-hmm. And that's so true in so many cultures that, well, you know, he feels bad because of X, Y, and Z. He yeah. feels bad because you don't have this. And I don't, it's like, I don't get away with any of that. <laughs> well, it's just like enough's enough. Yeah. He made his own choices. He can, he's a grown man. And that's was so poignant to me because the mother at the wake, oh, it was so infuriating to watch. But like, what do you do? Yeah. And it was just another example of how that character's power was taken away from her. Um, totally, totally. Uh, and that one, all like as I was thinking about it too, I was just like. You know, the I'm, lightning bears. Should we call these guys the lightning bears? We've been watching a lot of Friends lately. Yeah. And the, there's the the episode where Phoebe gives Monica and uh, not yeah Phoebe gives Monica and Rachel the book about being wind keepers, like keepers of their own wind. Like your strength pool. Is yeah, that what they call or, it? There's all sorts of funny things, yeah. but then they call they call men lightning bearers. Yeah. And they take they take from your like pool of eternity or something amazing and hilarious. So anyway, yeah. but. As I was watching that story, especially, like, you know, I could figure out what was going on. Again, they play with context so well in this movie. Yeah, they don't spell it all out for you. Yeah, you you find things out as the characters find them out, which I think is, like, I mean, of course, again, I haven't seen Steve McQueen's other movies, but I think that's really a strength that Gillian Flynn... uh, Oh, as writing, yeah. Yeah, is that you find things out as the characters find them out. Yes. Uh, But the whole time I was just like, man, I'm glad you and I talk about money together, (laughs) you know? Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Uh, Yeah, because, like, you know, everybody in a marriage on both sides will end up screwing up finances every so often. It's like, just own it and move on. Yeah, but to gamble also to let your your vice ruin your family is also Like, basically, she was giving him the money towards the lease, and he was giving it to the loan sharks, basically. Yep. So... 
so now let's get into Liam Neeson. So the interesting thing... Did we talk about all the loser husbands? Because there's also... There's the other one who literally, he has one line. I don't remember what he looked like. Well, he, that was Carrie Coon's goatee. husband. Yeah, yeah, Carrie Coon's husband. But it was also interesting. Her character was really interesting. And I think the movie did a disservice to that story. Because we, so we, we need to talk about her more before we talk about Liam Neeson because uh-huh. it's important. All right. So she, um, her husband dies and they have a four-month-old son. Mm-hmm. Viola Davis calls all the women together in the sauna, which was great. Her like steaming <laughs> out the other woman so that they could talk. Yeah. So good. Um, but she says, be there or I'm going to give your names up. And he, she does give them stakes, but I think she really thought that they would all be in danger. Yeah. I really, I don't, it was selfish. It was completely selfish, but I also, I, I don't know if we would have found out. I think those women were going to go because I think Viola Davis knew if her, if her husband left her in such a bind, uh-huh. these guys who weren't in charge yeah. were going to be even more monsters. And so, but Carrie Coon's character doesn't go to that meeting. No. Then Viola Davis meets with her and they have like lunch and she's like, Oh, I like, what was the meeting about? And she seems, they just let that character be unsatisfyingly pure. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, so like going into it, I was reading the, uh, I was reading like the cast list on it to see who's playing who, because especially with a movie that this has something like 10 people in the main cast. Right. Uh, it was totally an ensemble. Yeah. And I was like, I want to keep this straight. They describe her as one of the widows who doesn't get involved because she's too busy with her four month old son. And that's where they leave that. Yeah. Now, should we say the big spoiler? Big spoiler. And this is where I think they do Carrie Coons' character a huge disservice. Yes. So the big spoiler is that you find out Liam Neeson faked his death and set up his crew to die. And he was having an affair with Carrie Coon, and her four-month-old son was actually his. Now, to go back a little further, so Viola Davis and Liam Neeson had a son together who died when he was like 17. Um, oh, and that's, we'll yeah. have to talk about that on its own platform All right, in so, a sec, so, but let's finish this. Yeah, first. so he, but he dies before the movie starts. Yes. Um, and there are flashbacks where like, you know, she, there are things that said about having like an interracial marriage and, an, and a, um, biracial son. Yes. Uh, where like, it's like whenever she is in mourning and in pain, she kind of lashes back against him. Uh, using that. Yes. So that kind of informs him having having the baby with Carrie Coon. Right. Well, so she, not- and she screams at him and throws and she's like, and you wanted your white family? Yeah. Like, you wanted your white family, you just wanted the safe thing. You yeah. know, it was too difficult. Like, uh, So go back to what you were talking about, Carrie Coon, and you're like, un- being unsatisfied. Well, so she did this really bad thing. So, this is where I was totally right, you guys. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, dog, 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 <laughs> dog, dog. There's this goofy dog in this movie, and this dog's named Olivia, and this dog is very cute. <laughs> <laughs> this dog is very, very cute. And they set up really nicely that this dog liked her, liked Liam Neeson's character, um, uh, Mr. Mister Rollins. And um, anytime Olivia the dog smelled something of his, it, it would dog out. It would totally dog out. So um, Viola Davis goes to Carrie Coon's um, character's house and has the dog. 
Do you, why would you, why'd she go over there again? I don't remember off the top of my okay, head. Okay, so this is also how insignificant the storyline is. It's literally just to serve Liam Neeson, which I, bleh, uh, I don't like this part. Because, so she goes over there, and I don't know if it's just to check on her or to maybe convince her. Because, oh, they're needing a driver at the time. Uh-huh. And my suspicion is she was going to go ask her to be the driver. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's what it was. Okay. Um, again, suspicion, don't know for sure. They, and Violet Davis asks if she can put the dog, Olivia, down. And she sniffs around the house and sniffs, 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 and goes to the back door and starts barking and scratching. And I go, Liam Neeson's behind that door. I kind of, admittedly, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit because Jessica and I have been together for a long time. Yeah, and like in my brain was like his jacket or something, but they see the special flask. Yeah, which they've already set up and like other characters know that to be like his thing is he has his flask. He has his flask. And then Viola Davis gets really upset. She almost opens the door. Can you imagine if she had opened the door right then? I, I Honestly, I'm glad they didn't because it's it's the Hitchcock quote, uh, like... What what is it? Action is where there's a bomb under the table and it goes off. Suspense is where there's a bomb under the table and it doesn't go off. Right. Oh no. I mean, in the movie it would have been terrible. But yeah. like, I'm just talking like, what if this was the news? I know. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. So anyway, so she doesn't open it. She leaves. I think she knows though. She she definitely knows. Oh, she knows. She knows. She knows he's she knows he's alive. Like it's when they finally like see each other at the end of the movie. She's not shocked. Right. Um. She knows. But when Carrie Coon opens the door and she's like, I knew, I told you we should have left sooner. And then that's the last time we see her. There's no consequence to what she's done. Well, here's the interesting thing on that. And this is something that I can see a guy like Steve McQueen doing that on purpose. So, so the underlying thing for the four main women in the story is they're taking power into their own hands and they are freeing themselves from their situation. And they're, Regardless of methods or anything like that, you know, they are being empowered, right? Yes. Carrie Coon doesn't do that. She's waiting for another man to get her out of a bad situation. That's very, very So I think, I think that it is, yes, unsatisfying, and it would, it would have been nice to see something happen to resolve her story. But I think that, yes, she was there to underscore Liam Neeson's part of the story, but she was also there to show the, like, what could have happened if they didn't take this chance? If she would have just, if she would have just liquidated all of her clothes and everything. Yeah. Well, and that means too that this whole thing was in a year in the making, at least, uh-huh. because you know there's a lot of like the powers that be, and Colin Farrell's character is totally the dailies. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. Oh, totally. Colin Farrell and Robert Duvall, they are totally the dailies in oh, Chicago. Oh, totally. Uh, Jack Mulligan um, is totally the dailies, and um, that means that this whole like plot had been thickening for over a year because mm-hmm. he had to like think about it enough to like see her sleep with her because I do think that's his kid yeah I do, I do too and she and Viola Davis even says it at the end and he doesn't deny it true um so here's what I'm thinking with that so now now let's go back to their son uh Viola Davis and Liam uh, Neeson's son yeah so do you remember where it said on the gravestone near the beginning of the movie what year he died no. I, I think it was 2016. It was... Was it... Yeah. It was so, recent. It was yeah. like not that long ago. So... So basically what happens is he borrowed the car and his dad didn't realize it. And then he had... Uh, Something of importance in the glove compartment. It, it was... 
you heard him say, no, no, Dad, I'm not saying your anniversary isn't as important as this game. Oh, it was a present. Yeah. And so he was turning he was turning around and, to go take it back, and he made uh, an illegal U-turn. Right. It was like in the middle of the road. Yeah. And he's, in this, and he's a young black kid, um, and he's in a very nice convertible Mercedes. Yeah. So the cops put on the flashers, and he's still on the cell phone with his dad. He's like, oh, Dad, I got to take care of this. And he's like, Marcus, Marcus. That's, that was his name, I think. Um, yes. Uh, Marcus. And he's like, hold on. And he tries to hang up, and he sets the phone down. And- I, that was such a great detail, by the way, of how he, like... You could see him where he thought he hung up the phone. And the cop comes out. He's like, step out of the car. Keep your hands where I can see them. And then he's still here. His dad saying, Marcus, Marcus. And he's like, ugh. And he goes down to hang it up. And the cops open fire on him and kill him. Yeah. So that's what I was talking about earlier, how this is a very relevant movie, but it's not political. Like, this is a movie that talks about gerrymandering. This is a movie that talks about nepotism. This is a movie that talks about political corruption. And this is a movie that has two white cops shoot an innocent, unarmed uh, African-American teenager. Yeah. And it touches on all those things. And it allows you to feel the way you feel about them. Well, it's not movie, shoving it down your throat. No, and this movie is just sanguine with racial inequality. Yeah. I mean, because... Even though Elizabeth Debicki is technically a white girl, mm-hmm. she's a six-three white girl that doesn't look doesn't look like a mutt like me. Yeah, like she, I, I'm she like, obviously does not fit in in the situation that she's in. Right. So, and and like, and you assume that someone that looks like a supermodel has an easy life. Yeah. And that, and it was just. And how it's so much harder. And that people, I'm assuming too, for Viola Davis's character, for Veronica, that she's only where she is because she married a white man. Right. And they even say that she was like, what, the head of the teacher's union? Yeah, she was in the union? Teacher's, teacher's union. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so going back to my original point. Again, guys, this episode is kind of all over the place because it's so finely woven with each other. Like we're actually not getting distracted on this. This is just how the conversation takes place. Yeah. Um, but so Marcus died in 2016 and then there was a flashback of like, you know, him trying to be intimate with Veronica, Viola Davis. Uh, and then that's where he mentioned something. She mentioned something about like, you know, well, you know, if you would have just had your white family, none of this would have happened. And then he storms out of the bed. And what I'm inferring from that is that that was around the time he started having an affair with his, uh, with the guy who was working for him, his wife. And then he got her pregnant. And that's whenever he, like, I think that was the moment what we see there is where he kind of like falls out of love with her, which is like, you know, I can be without Veronica now. But it's so bizarre because even the morning of the heist, they're in- they well, seem so in love with each other. Well, whenever you see it from her perspective, you see it from his perspective first at the beginning of the movie, and then you see it from her perspective near the end. Uh, from her perspective, that's what it looks like. But from his perspective, you see him as conflicted as possible, and you can see him put the mask back on. You know, it's almost like he... I mean, I don't think that you're wrong there, and there's another point that I'm about to get to about that. Uh-huh. Um, there, one thing that I love the way that the movie did is that it still showed that there was love between them. So at the very end of the movie, whenever she gets the money and everybody else goes their separate ways and she's going to get them their money, however, that they don't show that in the movie. No, and, she gets everybody their money, yeah. though. And yeah, every, everybody is taken care of. Yeah. But he shows back up at the, he shows back up at the hideout 
Yeah. And he's like, I need that money. Like, he is leaving. And she says that he's leaving with his white family. And that's whenever he slaps her. Like, yeah. yeah. And, which is weird because you don't usually see Liam Neeson hit women. No. Yeah. So, like, I, I thought it was a good against type, you yeah. know. But he's getting the money out of there. And he pulls out a gun. And he is so conflicted. You see that in his face. Like, this is a woman who... He had a son who almost reached adulthood too. They've probably been together for 25 years. Yeah. And he's about ready to shoot her. And then she gets the drop on him and she shoots him. And and it's a great moment. Yeah. And she, so they kill Robert Duvall uh, during the robbery. And that was a mess. Yeah. Uh, and then she takes the gun from, it was Michelle Rodriguez who shot him. Michelle Rodriguez shot him and he shot Elizabeth Debicki. Right. Um, and so she, so... Viola Davis has the gun with her, and after she shoots him, she puts the gun that killed Robert Duvall in his hand, but as she does that, she stays there, and she touches his face, and she is in tears, because no matter what they did to each other, that's a history that you can't just throw away. No, and I just thought... I, I, th- I thought that it was... I thought it was just so so wonderful how they did that, because that was such a layered thing, and you know, you sit there, and you're like, if I were in that situation, I don't know if I would have been able to do that any differently. I, I don't like looking. I'm I'm sitting what less than five feet from you right now. Uh-huh. I couldn't shoot you. No, I like I can't even put myself in those shoes. But it was between him and all those women. That's mm-hmm. where it was. It was between not just her, everyone else, and everyone's life he ruined. Like, and it was just so she did what she had to do. And may I add. Our theater erupted. Yeah. Erupted in, like, for lack of a better word, you go girls. Yeah. Because that, like, in the past, I feel like it would have gone the other way. Mm -hmm. And it didn't this time. No, this, this is a movie that fits very well in the climate that it was in. Like, I know you guys kind of touched on this in Star is Born, and we talked about it afterwards, is that... That's such an odd movie to make in this climate because yeah. it's essentially a guy using his power to get a woman to fall in love with him. Yeah. But I think this is a movie that is the opposite. It fits the climate that we're in very well because, you know, like it shows women who are not treated well by their men and it allows them to make a better life for themselves. Yes. And it also, and I think you made a really good point at the beginning of this podcast was that everybody's a criminal. Okay, playing field, criminal. Right. Everyone, criminal. So, because just normally murdering people's really not okay. We, we tend to avoid it. Yeah, right. We just, like, don't kill people. That's important. Number one. If you learn nothing else from this podcast. In case no one's ever told you before, don't kill anyone. Don't <laughs> kill anybody. So they, I think it was really smart to level that playing field because this was a justified killing in this story. Yeah. And it was, uh, but also one thing we talked about too is that this isn't a romantic movie. It doesn't make anything about this romantic. No. Well, and like if you're, and if you're using the word like romantic in the traditional sense, which is like, you know, a love romantic type thing, the 
So I, I know you're not. Oh, because yeah, no, it doesn't no. romanticize anything. It doesn't. Yeah, but this. But, yeah, this movie is not uh, a romanticized version, but it's also just not romantic. It well, doesn't make this any of this seem lovely. I IMDb actually has one of the the genre descriptors of this movie as a romance. Uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah, I don't. Shut I, up. I don't agree with that. What I think this does is that this movie shows love without romance so well because yeah. there is love in this movie. Even at the very end, after he's about to kill her and she kills him, there is love between them. Oh, agreed. And I'm not saying there's not love in right. it. Right. No, but I'm I'm actually, I thought I was supporting your notion. Oh. I'm sorry if it came off any differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it just was. And it's just like kicking. And also, too, what felt good about this movie is, but it's also bad. It's like. Like the whole gerrymandering and like the politics of this movie is, you know, they got a person of color into the alderman of the 18th ward, but it's still no, they didn't. He lost. Oh, he lost. Yeah. Oh, I I heard that completely different. Yeah, it was because uh, Robert Duvall was murdered. They talk about how Colin Farrell won in a sympathy vote, and that was I act- misheard that term completely. Yeah, basically, Brian Tyree Henry is a gangster. And yes. he's trying to become the alderman so that way he can get out of the life and uh, ha- have actual But power. how he's getting about... So Daniel Kaluuya's character... Oh my... He is so scary and so good in this he's movie. so scary. But also it's Henry when he goes into um, Veronica's home... Oh, yeah. ...and threatens her. And he hurts the dog. Mm-hmm. He hurts the dog. No, both of them were just great. I think da- Daniel Kaluuya... Uh, I think that he is up there with Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men in terms of scary intensity. Scary. So scary. Um, also, uh, Kevin J. O'Connor's in this movie. Uh-huh. So we had just, we've just we just re-watched for the 10,000th time The Mummy. Uh-huh. He, he's almost using totally the same voice. It was like insane. <laughs> now, um, now, do you think he died? I think they indicated that he died. Um, I'm really unsure, actually. Yeah. Uh, the driver did. Yeah, the driver definitely did. Uh, which, Garrett Dillahunt. Yes, which I really, really liked his character. You like him and everything. I like, love Garrett Dillahunt. I mean, like we were both big fans of Raising Hope before it jumped the shark in the last season. Yeah, definitely watch the first two seasons of Raising Hope. Yeah, it's but it's quite lovely in he, every way possible. He's great in that. He played uh, he played a rapist and murderer in the remake of Last House on the Left, which I don't necessarily recommend you watch that movie more than once but you know it's a remake of an important horror film uh but he was also in looper and we both he didn't have a huge part in looper but we both really liked him he in was that. so good in looper yeah he was so good in looper and that was such a wacky movie and i think we were one of 50 people that liked it um <laughs> hey i rewatch looper at least once a year i like looper yeah but garrett dillahunt's really great um and again he's it's another example of there's no small roles in this movie because you would say he's fairly insignificant, but he makes Viola Davis feel safe, mm-hmm. and he's an important part of their family that they've built. I, I, I love mean, the way that they portrayed his loyalty, too. Yeah, like, oh, I'll go work part-time at a security place. Yeah. But also, that's Chicago. Uh-huh. Like, it was such a Chicagoan movie. Yeah. Like, it was... And if you not lived there, maybe you don't feel it as much, but, like, that, I've been to that diner. Like, yeah. I know that diner, and... There's no diner like those anywhere mm-hmm. else I've ever lived. Yeah. And it just felt familiar. Those streets felt familiar. You know what was also really brilliant is the drive um, when Colin Farrell and his aide 
uh-huh. uh, leave. Um, Oh, they leave the vacant lot and end up back at his house? And it's the entire conversation is outside the car, but you see him drive out of bad neighborhood into beautiful neighborhood. And it goes from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. And I wonder, too, if like Colin Farrell's always shot on the right side. And I wonder if the direction of travel of the camera... But the, the, photogra- the, the direction of photography in this film is so good. Well, this film really captured Chicago to me. Yeah, Again, but I also I haven't been story. there in a long time. Like, you know, I know you've been there pretty recently in the last few years, and I haven't been there since you were in school there. Right, but how, how, how many times did you walk those streets? Oh, yeah. How many times did we get off at the wrong train stop? Exactly. Or we, get off we, used the... to, we used to walk from her apartment in Lincoln Park all the way up to uh, all the way up to the pier, Navy Pier at Lake Michigan, and then walk down uh, into like you know the really touristy, ritzy part of downtown and the uh, Millennium Avenue was it or Millennium Park and Michigan Avenue? Well, there was Michigan. Yeah, so we would walk south to the pier, and then we would walk through the loop, and then we would get back on the red line. And I usually lived off either the red or the brown line. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so like, yeah, it definitely felt Chicago to me. And I think that's one of the things besides the fact that the heist music felt very much like Dark Knight. That's one of the things that made this movie feel like Dark Knight to me in a, in a way is because the Dark Knight, even though they call, they're calling it Gotham City, that's almost a love letter to Chicago. Agreed. This movie is a little less of a love letter, but this is like, this is a movie that's telling Chicago you're a part of this. Well, it also is, it's saying to me is the like kind of this corruption in Chicago that hurts people has got to stop. Yeah. Like in the the aldermans that were running, right? It's the aldermen. Uh-huh. The aldermen. Yeah. It's hurting people. This long line of politicians is hurting people. Police corruption, just assuming that everybody has a gun, is hurting people. The amount of crime and crime families and gangs is hurting people. What I took away from this movie, too, is that, like, you know, it's a really cliche thing to be like, oh, well, you know, it's almost like New York City is one of the characters in the movie, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you, you should have seen her roll her eyes the way that she just did. Um, but to me, this movie is a Chicago movie because Chicago made Chicago made the characters in this movie. You yeah. know, uh, we don't know Liam Neeson's full backstory, but he was in pretty well with the uh, with you know the corrupt alderman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, it's safe to say that you know he found a way to live in Chicago, and that's what he did. But it was the police in Chicago that killed his son, which set forth the action of the movie. So Chicago made this movie. Well, it, also, it was being in Chicago. It's forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Well, you know? but, but also on the flip side, he'd always been a criminal. Yeah, he was always a criminal, even before his son. Yeah. Well, that. But that's what I'm saying is that I can't really say it from there. But in terms of like the actions of this movie. Like the the yeah. actual meat of the movie, Chicago made this movie. But even more so, the police killed his son. Yet he still had dealings with the police. Right. He did something even worse. He never said no. Mm-hmm. He was even worse. Yeah, that's a good point. He never said no to the people who killed his son. That's even worse. He was the worst of criminals and true criminals and people who make this world a bad place 
Don't even say no to people who kill their family. And like even the Godfather, they would have killed the police. Mm-hmm. And that he didn't even do that. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed Jessica putting Jordan in his place <laughs> for about the fifth time in the series. <laughs> no, I, th- I think you're right. I think I think you're right. Um, if we can talk about something a little less heavy. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie is dense. It, it's super dense, guys. It feels it, good to watch. Honestly, I can't wait to see this movie again. Agreed. I agree. I, I agree. This I think, is going to be in our collection. This yeah, is going to go. I think this movie for me is going to be is going to be somewhere on the same level as Fargo. Yes. Is that this is to quote Roger Ebert about Fargo, what he said about that was this is a movie that reminds me why I love movies. Yeah. And I kind of feel the same way about this. It also it's a love letter to good good filmmaking because like you said there wasn't drama around this movie. No. They got people who knew what they do and how to do it well. And they just made a flippin' movie. I was also very impressed with the fact... So Steve McQueen, he didn't win for Best Director for 12 Years a Slave. Okay. But he won... He was a producer on it. So he just won an Oscar for 12 Years a Slave. Right. Normally, whenever you see somebody make a quote-unquote prestige movie, Mm -hmm. and they win an Oscar for it, and then they go back to make a quote-unquote popcorn movie, it's never this good. This is I mean, if you guys can think of any way that I'm wrong, let us know. Yeah, let let us know on Facebook or Instagram or anything like that because or in a review. Yeah, we do respond to those. Yeah. Um. Th- this, you know, and it's interesting. I can see how this was maybe supposed to be a popcorn movie because it is an action. There's thrill and there's action to it. Yeah, and it is a heist. Yeah, I mean, this is still like this is not an art movie to me. No, no, this is, no, no, this no. is a this is a crowd-pleasing popcorn movie that has so much more to say and it subverts its way into saying it. Again, it doesn't yeah. beat you over the head with the fact that, you know, the police killed this unarmed African-American teenager. No, and you don't find that out till almost the movie is done. Yeah. Like you just you live with this heavy feeling of they've lost a son and you don't know why. Yeah, and you think like you know you think it's going to be something like Arrival, uh, where like you know it's lost to an so, unstoppable disease or something. No, like no, that. no. I honestly thought is because he got into the family business. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was going to be he got into the family business and things go wrong when you're in a criminal family. Like I thought it was going to be like a Godfather kind of thing. Yeah, and then to find out it's. I don't know if it's worse or like it's something. It it was something meaningless. Something meaningless. For as much violence as Liam Neeson's character surrounded himself with in this movie, his son died over something meaningless. Right, and had no connection with them knowing who his dad was. Yeah. And I wonder if they knew who his dad was if it would have saved him. I don't know. I don't either. Um, we'll never know because it is a movie, but yeah, um, yeah, and that's something. Whenever I was editing uh, last week's episode, uh, you and Sam got into a discussion on like, like she, uh, she was inferring like you know, oh well, you know, even though it didn't show it in the movie, it was probably like this or it was probably like this. And I'm very much, you know, I know I bring up Roger Ebert a lot, mm-hmm. and it makes sense because this is a Chicago movie, and nothing says Chicago filmmaking to me more than Roger Ebert. Amen. But. 
he used to teach a class on being there with Peter Sellers. You know, mm-hmm. the one where he's like the mentally handicapped gardener. Yeah. Who becomes almost president of the United States. Yeah. At the very end of the movie, I don't know how well you remember it, but he literally walks on water. And uh, they never explain how. And whenever he would teach that class, he would ask his film students, you know, like, why did he do that? How did he do that? And uh, people would be like, oh, well, you know, maybe there was a board under there that he was just walking across and he got lucky. He's just like, no, that is actually an incorrect answer because the movie never shows a board. You can infer that that's how they did it. And you can infer that maybe that's how they actually pulled it off in camera. But the movie never shows you a board, so therefore there is no board that exists. Correct. And that's kind of the way that I... I mean, there's, there's always an exception to the rule. Right. Well, I mean, as Star is Born, we literally were trying to figure out how the dog got outside. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't think we need to go too hard no, on that. I, don't, I wouldn't dive too deep into there. <laughs> but we just had to figure out how the stupid dog got outside. Yeah. And so we came up with an idea that the dog had a dog door. We had to come up with it because otherwise... I mean, the, that's another movie that the... the uh, the guitar strings have gone down for. Yeah. Uh, and this movie keeps going up higher and higher. Yeah, even the... It's kind of like whenever we were talking about Halloween. And obviously, this is a very different movie than Halloween. You know? Oh. But, like, the quibbles that I have with it, I just really don't even care because I like the overall movie enough. Well, and the story in this is so good. I yeah. mean, it's such a strong story. And that's... And it's just... It's a story. And it took me away and it made me feel it kind of hit all those things that when I go see a good movie that I want to have I want to feel I want to be transported it's not my life right yeah. we're not we're not criminals this this isn't this isn't a normal story this isn't you know it, it's it's something it's elevated it's not my daily life and there's just a lot to it that I just I really appreciate and I totally dig and and it's also just really well thought out. Like I don't, this wasn't just slapped together or, and no. it wasn't made to impress studio execs. It was, it was made to be made. And I feel like Steve McQueen wasn't silenced to make it. No. And I think that he understood how to make it palatable and entertaining as well. And yeah. to be able to make a movie that's this smart and that says this much and feels this much and still make it an entertaining movie. Crazy. Yeah, like I cannot say enough good things about this movie. It's uh, and I feel like we could go on and on and on about. Just I felt like this was one of those movies that everybody had a job and everyone did it well. Yeah, yeah. There's I can't think of a weak link in this movie. No, and there's things that I have questions about and whatnot. But then I'm, but it was also very clearly a movie. Yeah, if I never find out, because I, th- I think you and I probably have questions about the same things. Yeah. If I never find out the answer to those, I'm okay. Yeah, and and I'm curious about seeing this movie again. Yeah. Like, I wonder what I didn't see. Yeah. Well, I can assure you that this is going to be one that is added to our library. I think so. I so think so. There's one more thing I want to say, and the only reason I'm, it doesn't even need to be said, but I teased it earlier in the episode, so I have to kind of say it. Do it. So uh, whenever we were talking about the audience reactions, there was one that yes. I that I thought the overall audience reaction was way off on. Oh, yeah. I can't remember if you were in the theater for this or not, uh, where Michelle Rodriguez goes to the architect's husband's house. Well... Yeah, and then they start kind of making out. Yeah, so what happens in that scene is she's going there because the architect's wife designed this room that they're trying to figure out what it is because that's one of the things that Liam Neeson leaves behind. Um, 
and uh, she goes there, and then he's, uh, he kicks her out because he's like, obviously you didn't know who my wife was because she's been dead for four months. And she breaks down. She's like, I'm sorry. My husband died three weeks ago. And she starts crying. And then he goes to comfort her. And then slowly they start kissing. And eventually she pulls away and she's like, I'm sorry. I need to leave. Uh, to me, that that to me that illustrated how well this movie deals with grief and how grief drives everything that's in this movie up to a certain point. Yeah. Um, even, even the actions of Liam Neeson is driven by grief. Yeah. Uh, because he lost his son and he felt like he lost his wife at the time too. Yeah. Um, but the audience was laughing when they started kissing and that I didn't get because to oh. me that was a very powerful moment. I thought so too. And I, and I was also as an, uh, as a, a viewer, cause their character's smart. All these women are smart in their own. They're just smart. Nobody and, here is like the traditional housewife. No, like no, 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 Everybody no, no. is capable of taking care of themselves. They yep. just needed the opportunity to strike. Right. And I couldn't, I was on the fence of, is this, is she playing him? Mm -hmm. uh, did, and he didn't, he, I don't feel like he was initially taking advantage, but they were both still grieving and it spiraled. But then I also wondered, did she play him? Well, that's what, and I, yeah, that's what I thought was thinking it was going to go to. Like either he was taking advantage of her or she was playing him. But at the end of, at the end of the day, you know, like she didn't get any more information out of him than she wanted. So she wasn't playing him and he wasn't predatory towards her whenever she said she needed to go. So she, yeah, he just let her go. Yeah. So to me, that was just a moment of two people sharing in their grief the way that they know. I mean, and, it's and, and kind, loneliness, like, yeah, it's like he, on six feet under, you uh, know, there were so many moments of that on six feet under and you and I would always, we always noted that, you know? Yeah. And if you've never lost someone that means the world to you, but also had their shitty moments and you still grieve for them, that was something that was also so truthful to me about these women's experience is in a way, like, why do you even grieve this loser person of your husband? Like, the, like their husband's overall, other than Veronica at a glance. Yeah. He was wonderful. Uh -huh. at, at a very bare minimum, Veronica had a dreamy life. Yeah. But also, she also probably lived in fear. Like, But it also showed that you can still love someone and that these women, their lives were in a spiral from losing someone important to them. Yeah. So I think you're right that I think grief was a driving factor in this movie and it I think that's also it made it a heartfelt movie and that you wanted to root for these women but not romantic yeah no it, it didn't romanticize it didn't romanticize anything and again like what it goes back to it this movie shows love without romance yeah agreed. and and love often doesn't make sense no you I sometimes you can't help who you love no you and, know and she still loved him even after it was a I'm gonna kill him or else he's gonna kill me Right. And, you know, a lesser movie would have had her shut that off immediately. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, you, or had them both die. Yeah. And had they would have both died and then they would have died holding hands. Can you imagine how awful that would have been? I I think the I think the movie theater would have revolted. I know at least two people in the movie theater <laughs> who would have revolted. And it's not us. Yeah. We would have witnessed the revolt. Um 
but but also um, you're talking about them laughing. I wonder if it was in a, in discomfort. Do you feel like that was it? That's right when I had to get up and stretch. Yeah, that's why I couldn't remember if you saw that or not. Like if you actually had to leave the theater or not. I saw the moment, but I didn't hear. So I have an old stunt injury, you guys, that I have to get up and walk it out sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, if you're ever in a movie theater with me and I have to get up for a second, that's why. Um, but I. So I didn't hear the laughing. Yeah. So I'm asking, did you feel that it was maybe out of discomfort or? Honestly, it was harder for me to tell. Okay. I think maybe if you were sitting there next to me, I could have gauged the reaction because I know what your reaction is. I have a barometer for you. Uh-huh. So maybe I could have figured that out. Oh. You know, to me, I mean, it very well could have been. It's just odd that, you know, a hundred people would have had the same reaction at the same time. And again, a laugh is infectious. So it very well could have been. I guess really at the end of the day, I just don't know enough to be able to say. Interesting. Yeah, because I thought everybody, because I mean, we had a very vocal audience today. And um, man, whenever these women had victories, though, it felt good because everyone cheered. Yeah. Everyone cheered. And when uh, Elizabeth DeBecky got shot, everyone was destroyed. Yeah. And really worried. Can I also mention that in the heist, I love the fact that the voice modulators they used was uh, Michelle Rodriguez's kid's toy that they that they uh, set up near the beginning of the movie. They did? Yeah, there was a moment where, like, uh, where, I can't remember what it was, it maybe whenever the daughter was like, why do we have to go to grandma's? And she said, she had this toy in her mouth, and she said it, and it was like, why do we have to go to grandma's, or something like that. <laughs> that's funny. And I'm pretty sure, like, that's what they used for the voice modulators. Well, and it was in the mask. Yeah. But I think that's literally what they the used. Like, like, Yeah, like that, like, they foreshadowed that in there. Uh, that's fun. With it. So I, I just I love missed that. that. That's awesome. Um, We could go on for much longer, and I'm sure we'll just kind of throughout the evening talk and um because now we're allowed to talk about the movie now we're allowed to talk about the movie it, it's always um, hard whenever we go to, like to lunch or dinner between recording this and the movie because there's so much that we both want to say but we've made the agreement that we can't talk in depth about the movie until we get here yeah, and we save it to talk with you all we are allowed to say what the tone of the episode is going to be but like we don't even talk star ratings no we and we're allowed to say whether we like it or not um so here we are at the end of this uh, session, um, and we'll, I'm going to ask what we always ask. Should people go see this movie? Yes. I think that, for one thing, if you're just a fan of film, and you're a fan of heist movies, and you're a fan of darker movies, then you absolutely need to see this movie. Um, I would say even for people who... You know, this this movie, again, the similarities with Gone Girl, I think just because uh, Gillian Flynn... Uh, she's, got, she's got a tone. Yeah, but of course, you know, she like she was also adding her tone onto a story that was already that's already been told, too. Yes. So, like, you know, it's not like, you know, oh, well, you know, this is just the same thing because the same person wrote it. But she has a tone, but, like, you know, I could see putting this in the category of, like, a Gone Girlish type movie. But if you don't want something as disturbing as that, because this movie I don't find very disturbing. Now, it it is a heavy hitter emotionally. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that it has anything in there that's like disturbing or hard to watch. Right. Like so, I haven't seen Gone Girl again because that was 
There's moments that are really hard to watch. Yeah, but like this movie, if you're a person who thinks that movies like this sound interesting, but you don't want to see anything that's too disturbing, I don't think this is out of the realm of possibility for you. It is definitely not a movie for kids. No. Um, like, you know, and it's kind of like whenever we grew up watching, like, you know, my first R-rated movie was Air Force One and Face Off, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, Face Off is an incredibly violent movie, but it's very cartoony. Yeah. So like, you know, that's something where like, if somebody were like, oh yeah, I just showed my 11 year old son face off. Like I wouldn't judge, you know? No, mine was true lies at eight. Yeah. But like, this is a movie that I think it's definitely more adult themed. Uh, It definitely, definitely doesn't shy away from sexual content in a few places. Yeah. There's booby. Yeah. There's boobies. Mm -hmm. I mean, she looks good. Don't get me wrong. Right. But if you don't want your eight year old. Yeah. So it's not Jamie Lee Curtis in her underpants. Right. So, but yeah, I would say that if you are interested in these movies, but you tend to shy away from them because like, you know, they get to be really dark and really disturbing. There are a couple of like violent moments, a couple sexual moments and, you know, some definitely language in this movie. Yeah. But, uh. I mean, it's intense. Yeah. But it's not so bad that I don't think a newbie to this style of movie could, couldn't jump into it. That's totally. more, I think that's the point I'm trying to make and I'm just doing a very bad job of finishing <laughs> my thought. Fair enough. Um, I would also say this is something I think you should go see it, especially if you've gotten all the way to here and you still haven't gone seen it. Um, go see this movie. I actually don't think we've, I mean, spoiler city all over the place. Um, I don't think we've ruined the movie. No, even, I, I think even if you know the twists and turns of this movie, you can still watch it and totally enjoy because it. Because we've actually not touched on a lot. Yeah. And a lot of the feeling and the tone and a lot of the little nuances I mean, this could be this movie is b- wonderful in the heist genre, but also if you're like me, I'm a little, I'm a little tired. I'm a little tired right now, and I've been hurt by some bad movies this year. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I've seen a lot of bad movies, and I'm tired of seeing women get picked up, put Olivia <laughs> Munn down. Like I'm tired of, I'm tired of, I'm just, I'm just tired, and I like. I saw parts of Oceans, um, what's the one with all the women, 13? Uh, Oceans 8. Oceans 8. Like I was, I didn't go see that, I was tired. I didn't, I don't want to see more like women, although Oceans 8 I saw on an airplane from LA to here. Uh huh. It was great. Yeah. I wanted to see it, I just never got around I to it. I didn't, yeah, but I didn't want to see it. I was yeah. tired. I'm t- I was tired, but I saw it and it was really fun. Anywho, but if you're kind of feeling that way and you're just like, uh, why, like, am I just going to see another superhero movie? Am I going to go see the remake of The Grinch? Which I probably will. Like, am I going to go see these things I'm supposed to see? I don't want to see this movie. Go buy the, go, go, go get a ticket and go see this movie because it was a friendly reminder that it's okay to let yourself be vulnerable and go see a movie that's going to pay you back. Yeah, this is a movie that knows you're investing in it and has nothing but the best intentions to make sure that your investment is sound. Agreed. And it doesn't, it didn't hurt my feelings. It didn't leave me unsatisfied. It left me going, I saw a complete story and it earned its moments and it, it just felt good to watch a full story. Yeah. And it's got holes. It's got holes. Yeah. It only was a couple hours of my life, but it reminded me of art and why we see it. And it was also good to not just see more white dudes win. And I really appreciated 
what this movie achieved. And, uh, you know, I really, I don't, this movie should be in the Oscar race. So here's a question then. Yeah. So, so far the three best movies that I think that we overall agree that we've seen on this podcast are recent ones. Mm -hmm. So this first man and Halloween. Yeah. Halloween isn't going to get any Oscar love. We know that. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, first man won't either. I think it might, but if let, but I mean, I'm not even sure about this one just because I can't judge the, I mean, first man's going to get some, um, stunt love, um, for like best, like special unique stunt for the Fireburn. Like at the Taurus Awards? Yeah. At the Taurus Awards. Well, what I was going to ask is. Taurus Awards, by the way, are the Taurus World Stunt Awards. Yeah. It's the stunt Oscars because we are not important enough to be included in the Oscars. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why there are a lot of people who are trying to change that. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, Quentin Tarantino being one of the biggest proponents. I mean, but he, I mean, think about the movies he makes and what Zoe Bell gives him uh-huh. and, and what also people like stunts are an art and a science. Like yeah. in the, in one of the jobs I'm working on right now, I'm designing rigs while having to tell a story about Yetis. Like, you know, we need, it's all, it's all of them. Yeah. So, and there's coordinators who've won science awards so, yeah. for what it's worth. So what I was going to ask is if widows and first man, if they were both in the best picture race, mm-hmm. what do you think you'd be leaning more towards? As far as best picture, uh-huh. widows. I think me too. Because first man tells a story about someone who already exists and takes liberties with his life. Uh-huh. Right. So, but it's something that already exists. Style is great. The style of the movie is amazing. And maybe Damien Chazelle, if we're just looking at these, like these are the only movies being considered for Oscars. Yeah. I could see him being up for a best director nod Mm -hmm. because the, like it's very tonally relevant. And, uh, you know, this Ryan, (laughs) who plays Neil Armstrong. Gosling. I know. I know which one it is. Ryan or Chris. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I know this one's because the other Ryan is, uh, sardonic. Um, (laughs) the non sardonic one. Yeah. Um, and his, uh, we watched his SNL again. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan Gosling's SNL. (laughs) So funny. Good mercy. He was the last season's opener. Sweet mercy. He's funny. Yeah. Um, I would say, I could say that, but as far as better movies, this is a reimagined original tale and not just something based on reality. I think I would probably agree. If, if I were voting for one of these for best picture, first man or widows, I would probably choose widows. Yeah. Um, Again, that's not to say that I like First Man any less. In fact, if I, I meant to say it at the beginning of the episode. I don't know if we ended up getting sidetracked or not. But First Man is one that we were both like, yeah, that stays exactly where we wanted it, if not a little higher. Yeah, it's on my library to check out book list, too. Yeah. And I'm, yeah, I, I agreed. And again, we've said this before. We don't, our ratings don't come from rating a movie to another movie. It's just us leaving it and going... Yeah, this podcast is genuinely our first reactions to the movie. You know, I've gotten some interesting responses from our episode on Halloween. Yeah. Just just because, you know, the things that we didn't like about the movie were things that a lot of people didn't like about it, but like that made them be like like F- this movie basically. Yeah. <laughs> um so I've had some interesting conversation with some with some friends about that one. Uh, I've also had some conversations where people were like, "Yeah, I thought the same thing, but I was exactly with you." Uh, you know, I I didn't like the movie any less. In fact, somebody actually told me listening to your podcast makes me like the movie even more. Good. Yeah. 
Oh, good. Um, but uh, but yeah, I definitely think th- I definitely think Widows and First Man in that order are the best movies we've done since we started this. I agree. Um, I don't even know what else would really be up for Best Picture this year. I mean, I'm sure um, a Star is Born. Oh, it's going to be, but y'all know my feelings on that. <laughs> if not, just go back one more episode. And you'll see, which if nothing else, the first couple minutes of our A Star is Born uh, episode is hella funny. So yeah. do yourself a favor and listen to the two of us just kind of completely lose our cool within the first five minutes of the A Star is Born episode. Um, yeah. I mean, go see Widows. We're, I, I'm so thrilled that we saw this movie and I really didn't affect, I, I didn't expect to be affected by it. Or moved by it. Mm-hmm. And I, and the more I think about it, the more I like it. And yeah, I, I can't wait to see it again. Yeah, I, me too. I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Now, one thing just as we were talking about, it, I know this episode's going long, but guys, you know the movie's either really good or really bad when the episodes yeah. go this long. Uh, but we just mentioned, I don't know what's going to be... Uh, you know, in the Oscar categories this year. Yeah. So I'm looking up Entertainment Weekly's predictions for it. Okay. Uh, and they have a few things. I'm only going to read the ones that they're predicting for Best Picture. So A Star is Born. Um, Green Book. I'm interested to see that one. Oh, yeah. I yeah. Do, I'm really excited to it's see that. It's directed by a Farrelly brother. I know. Isn't that bananas? Yeah, I know. Uh, they're predicting Black Panther for Best Picture. Interesting. I could I could get on board with that. I wouldn't vote for it over Widows or First Man. But, Agreed, but interesting. But I I love that it's. I mean, that's a superhero movie. I could see you wanting to watch again because you you really liked that one. I did. It has gone down in my retrospect, but that, I think that's me with most superhero movies. I have a really good time in the theater, and then I go, oh yeah. Um, let's see. Can you ever forgive me? I'm not familiar with that I one. I don't know that one. Uh, the favorite, which we. Uh, that's the one that we saw the preview for with a Queen about Queen Victoria. That one looks bonkers. Yeah, uh, they're predicting First Man. Uh, I can see that. Yeah. Um, let's see here. Any other ones? They're predicting Tony Collette for Best Actress for Hereditary. Ooh. I would be totally down with that. Ooh. So Hereditary, um, if you didn't see it, is a scary movie, and it's made by those who made like The Witch. Uh, it comes it, at night. It's a twenty four. A twenty four. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, yeah. scary. Sca- and Tony Collette is great. She is a powerhouse in that movie. Yeah. Uh, they're also predicting Black Klansman for Best Picture. Ooh. Or maybe not predicting isn't the right word, but like these are what they're they're kind of saying. Right, they're just putting out in the universe. Uh, if Beale Street could talk, which is done by the guys who did Moonlight, so that looks interesting. Yes, and I'm actually um, that's also a book, and that's on my to check out at the library uh-huh. book. Um. Interesting. Oh gosh, I can't believe it's award season already. Yeah. Well, they're only predicting for Widows uh, Best Actress for her Viola Davis. I mean, totally, but the movie's so well composed, and if you're going to say an action movie like Black Panther, and I, this is no, I mean, I'm all about some Black Panther. I've had a good time, yeah. I would, but I would give that a three and a half. Yeah. No, it, I, yeah, I don't think it reaches the heights, and it sounds like we're just saying, oh well, you know, popular movies can't be, you know, taken seriously as best no, picture. No, I mean, Black, I mean, Black Panther is an example of a of, of. If that one got nominated for best picture, I would not be disappointed at all. No, it's like Jaws being nominated. Yeah, but to me, Widows is su- a superior, like storytelling. Yeah, they're also predicting the Hate You Give for best picture. Okay, uh, I I do want to see that. It actually looks, it looks like a good movie. Yeah. Um, see if they have any other ones here. 
I take this list a little less seriously because they didn't think Best Picture for Widows. But, you know, it wouldn't shock me mm-hmm. because the problem with the Oscars is that it... I mean, there are lots of problems with the Oscars. Don't don't get us wrong. There's Yeah, but there... I, I, I wonder, do they take the time to sit and watch these movies? Um, I'm, I'm curious on what SAG uh, screeners we get. Yeah. Because I tend to take those a little bit more seriously because... So we get screeners. So I'm a member of uh, SAG-AFTRA. And we get screeners and I vote um, for the SAG Awards. And so I'm interested to see what we get for screeners. And uh, stay tuned. We'll let you know. Yeah. Well, this episode is getting close to two hours long. Yes. Uh, so let's end with actually something about Widows. Go see this movie. Go see this movie. Go see this movie. And basically everything we've talked about is, I think this movie puts us in a spiral. So uh, I'm this curious is mo- how you feel after you see this movie. This is a movie that has spiraled us into talking about how much we love movies. And I think that regardless if you hear it from us or if you hear it from somebody else, if there is something that you've experienced, whether you want to consider it art, pop culture, entertainment... And it makes people feel this way about whatever it is that they're talking about in the general sense. I think that's something special. Agreed. 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 And that's why we do what we do. Yeah. With that being said, let's sign off. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go first. Uh, I'm Jess. I'm Jordan. And thanks for joining us at Date Night at the Movies. And we cannot wait to talk movies with you again like the big geeks that we are. (laughs) 